We're going to come to a time now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament Gospel. We're going to start at verse 5, but Matthew chapter 10, when you found that, if you could stand together with me for the reading of God's Word, and I'll read this for us. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 5. Matthew writes this, These twelve, that is, these twelve disciples of Jesus, Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pay, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver, that is, acquire no extra or additional gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy or, or receptive in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child. Children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all, all kinds of people for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, that is, the prince of evil, how much more will they malign those of his household? That's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, just commit this time to God, and then we'll dive into this passage together. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word now? Uh, these are your words that we're looking at today, and so they are what have power, they are what have authority. May we put ourselves underneath the authority of this word and not stand over it in judgment. And I ask that you would accomplish the purpose for which you sent out this word today. We promise that when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my, my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, I don't know if it's the same for you, uh, but sometimes we can get really excited about starting something, starting into something, joining uh, a club, uh, an organization, a team, whatever it is, 
only to like learn a bit more, find out what's actually involved, and then find out there's actually a lot more involved than we first imagined, which kind of like lowers the excitement level a, a lot. Um, maybe you've had an experience like this. I know for myself, I experienced this, for instance, uh, at, when as a child, growing up, I was convinced that as I got, became an adult, I was going to join the military. I was convinced that this was going to be my life goal. I was going to join the army, and I was super excited about that. Uh, some of it had to do with the fact of learning that both my grandparents had, uh, my grandfathers had fought in the Second World War, and that was kind of exciting and inspiring to me. Uh, if I'm honest with myself, though, I know a lot of it had to do with the fact that my dad and I basically watched every war movie ever made together growing up, and being a soldier looked awesome. Uh, I was like, that's cool. I mean, you get to do flybys by the tower and make the guy spill his coffee. Uh, you get to, like, gather with friends, going on missions together. Uh, I had one of those like Rambo and I's with a compass at the top. I mean, it was just like, this is cool, this is awesome. Until I grew up and, and learned a lot more about what's involved in, in actually being a part of the military, being a soldier, as well as the very real dangers involved. And suddenly, the reality was so far from the kind of idealistic picture that I made in my head, I just ended up losing interest altogether. And I think you see this exact same phenomena many times um, in other places as well. You see it in the Bible. So um, I think, for instance, I don't know how often or when was the last time you read Romans chapter 8. And if you read Romans chapter 8 recently, this is like the, the pinnacle of an already mountainous book that teaches us all these incredible things about God and how he relates to us. This is where we learn that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is where we learn that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Incredible. We, this, this is where Paul writes, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And for most of us, we read that, and whether you even consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, you think, wow, that, that, that does sound kind of amazing, really. Like, if I'm a child of God, I'm a, I'm a co-heir with Christ. I, I, all the stuff that belongs to Jesus belongs to me. Yeah, wow, okay, I'll, I'll sign up for that. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, until, until we keep reading. And we see the way Paul ends or, or concludes this statement of promise with this, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And all of a sudden we're like, ha ha. Yeah, the pen comes off the paper, and we're like, wow, okay. Really, huh? So, so, so in order to experience like, the glory of, of following Jesus, I also need to be willing to suffer with him. Hmm. Hmm. Which, which doesn't mean that we just walk. We're like, okay, well, I'm out. Like, like, it doesn't mean that, but it means at least as we see the fullness of what we're being called into, it causes us to kind of at least kind of slow down the train a little bit and, and consider our decision a lot more carefully, which is probably a good thing. So we're jumping back into this series today through the Gospel of Matthew entitled Kingdom Come. And uh, we had a couple weeks off for Easter break there, but now we're jumping back into this together. So just to kind of get us back on page here, following what we saw in chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, which was all about like what it meant to be a kingdom citizen, then we just recently finished going through chapters 8 and 9, which was all about Jesus demonstrating the kind of kingdom that he came to bring. Now we're moving into a whole new section of Matthew's gospel in chapter 10, 
where Jesus is now teaching his followers not how they should relate to those already within the kingdom, like how it is to operate as a kingdom family, but how it is that as kingdom citizens we should relate to the world around us, like what that looks like. But here's the thing. I, I, I brought up all that stuff about idealistic expectations giving way to, well, if nothing else, at least a much more sober reflection on whatever it is we might be like wanting to take part in or join up with. I, I brought that up as we began because as you see in our passage today, no question, like Jesus is absolutely calling his followers to join him in, in his message of, of preaching the message of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here and he's also calling them to join him in the miraculous works that bring verification and, and credibility to the message. We didn't look at this, but in verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm giving you authority over evil spirits. I'm giving you authority over every disease and sickness, which, come on, that, that does sound exciting, right? That sounds cool. I mean, on a way smaller level, this would be like, uh, like Iron Man, you know, if he was still with us, being saying to you, I want you to join the Avengers and... I'm going to give you one of those cool Iron Man suits so that you can fly around and do all the cool stuff that I do. You, you'd sign up for that. That sounds cool. That sounds awesome. And yet, as we read on, what we see is there's no question that Jesus is also calling his disciples to join him also in his sufferings. He spells out here in detailed fashion, actually, uh, the divisions, the persecutions, that his followers will experience as they join him in his mission. Man, I'm sure that when Jesus' disciples heard this, I'm sure it gave them pause uh, as, as far as their own involvement when they first heard the fullness of what he was calling them into, just as it gives us pause today when we hear the fullness of Jesus' call. Now, we know because of the gospel accounts that, that Jesus' disciples, they, they took him up on his offer. They said, yes, okay, they, they counted the cost, I mean, as much as any of us can heading into something like this, and they committed. They said, yes, we're going to follow Jesus on his kingdom mission, whatever it costs. But as we dig into this passage today and think about uh, our own response to Jesus' call, the question I think we ultimately need to be able to consider for ourselves is not only will I join Jesus in his kingdom mission, Will I join him in this mission to declare and demonstrate the realities of the kingdom that he came to bring? But also, will I join him in his sufferings and humiliations that he needed to experience in order to see his rescue mission carried out? Will I join him in, in both those things? Because that's the fullness of the call. Am I willing to join him in both? And so in order to help us, us have clarity, for us to see the fullness of what Jesus calls us to, and hopefully discern our own answer to that question. I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. I want to show you, first of all, being called into the ministry of Christ, and then we'll look at called into the sufferings of Christ, called into the ministry and the sufferings of Christ. So if you closed your Bible, your Bible app, or whatever it is, would you open them again to this passage? You can follow along with me. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 5 here. Follow along as we, we look at the fullness of what Jesus is calling us to. And consider both the desirability as well as the danger of Jesus' call. Okay. So let's look first of all at called into the ministry of Christ. Called into the ministry of Christ. And where you see this call is in that first part, that first section of our passage in verses 5 through 15, if you want to look there. Which I want to say right from the beginning, although 
Yeah, there are general principles that, that we can draw from this to apply to our lives today, like for every follower of Jesus, in every time, in every place. Uh, I believe Jesus' instructions here are largely a specific call to a specific ministry that he was sending his disciples on at a specific time, which means uh, a lot of this passage really is more descriptive than prescriptive. And I think we know that because although you see verses 5 through 6, Jesus tells his disciples there in particular, I don't want you to minister to anyone. Don't go to anyone other than the lost sheep of Israel. That is, I don't want you to minister to anyone other than Jews. Well, we know both because of Jesus' great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, make disciples of all nations, as well as what we see in the majority of the book of Acts. Jesus' ultimate calling is not just to Jewish people. His calling is to all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, which, thank God, because that includes most of us. So uh, we're here because that mission includes not just Jewish people, but, but all people. But along with the, the specificity of where and to whom they are to minister on this specific mission, we see Jesus also includes specific aspects of how they are to minister as well. And we see that in verses 7 and 8. So if you want to look there with me. Jesus says, kind of like, as you're going, proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Okay, so, so the ministry that, that Jesus has called his disciples to carry out includes both a declaration of the good news. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. As well as a demonstration of the good news of the kingdom. They're going to show what the kingdom of heaven looks like as people are healed, people are raised, people are released, and all these kinds of things. Which, when you hear that call, when you hear what they're being called to, to do, I'd ask you to just pause and, and I'd ask you the question, does that sound at all familiar to you? When you hear what they're being called to do, does anything kind of snap in your mind? You're like, I think I've heard that before. Well, just to jog your memory, if you didn't know, or maybe you're just new to the Bible and you never heard this before, that's fine. Um, if you flip back just a few pages to Matthew chapter 4, what you see is Jesus, immediately after his uh, baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. The very beginning of his public ministry is Jesus saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, right after that, you see Jesus, we, we looked at this specifically, chapters 8 and 9, you see Jesus healing the sick. Raising the dead, cleansing lepers, casting out demons. It's, it's literally the exact same thing. Jesus is calling them to do exactly what he was just doing. So, so you see, that's why I'm saying Jesus' disciples weren't just called into like ministry in general. Like, I want you to do some ministry stuff. They're called into the specific, exact ministry that Jesus had been carrying out up until this point himself. He's saying, I want you to do what you've seen me do. Now, there's a bunch of other specific instructions Jesus gives his disciples afterward as it relates to this particular mission. He tells them where they are or what they are and are not supposed to bring with them. He tells them where they are and are not supposed to stay. Uh, so, so those are kind of more uh, general uh, pictures, um, and I think those are specific to this mission. But as it relates to what we saw in verses 7 and 8 about how they are to minister, I think that absolutely is where Jesus' instructions here begin to like extend out now beyond that specific mission to every follower of Jesus in every time, including right up until today. And I think that's true because you see the way Jesus' disciples continue to minister following this specific mission, like for the rest of the book of Matthew. And then what you see 
Jesus' disciples doing through the book of Acts as Jesus' kingdom unmistakably spreads to Jews and Samaritan and Gentiles alike. What you see Jesus' disciples continuing to do is following this exact same pattern of ministry, gospel declaration and demonstration. They carry on the exact same pattern. So that's why I think that's not just specific an individual to this mission. It's, it's how we are to minister as Jesus' disciples going forward. I think, I think it demonstrates that pretty clearly and beyond a shadow of a doubt. That, that, that this is a pattern of ministry that's be, to be carried out by every follower of Jesus from that time forward. So this is what it looks like. This, this is what it, it means to be called into the ministry of Christ. You're called to declare the message of the kingdom and called to demonstrate the message of the kingdom in all kinds of ways that, that demonstrate the reality of what Jesus' kingdom is like. And yet, yeah, man, what, what is so strange, and I see this everywhere I look around today, although this ministry of gospel declaration and demonstrate, it, it, it's this ministry pattern that, that Jesus carried out. We see his disciples carrying out in the gospels. We see it carried out into the book of Acts, which describes the kind of spirit-empowered beginnings of the early church as Jesus rises and ascends to heaven and sends his spirit to empower them to mission. They have this mission of gospel declaration, demonstration. Still, when, when you look around today, what, what I still often see is churches tending towards one or, or the other of those things, almost to the exclusion of the other. And, and I, I don't know why that is. Uh, maybe it has something to do with uh, what we're going to look at in a moment about being called to the, the sufferings of Jesus. But when you look around the world, uh, particularly around North America, I think what you see is, on the one hand, you have churches that are all about gospel declaration. They're like, we are standing for the truth. We are all about declaring the truth. We are all about like uh, sharing boldly the message of the gospel, calling people to repentance, calling people to new life in Christ. And, and listen, that's good, and that's right, and that's exactly what the church should be doing. And yet when it comes to actually being involved in people's lives, uh, um, serving the poor, ministering to the sick, putting energy and resources into social programs that, that do serve common needs and the common good of the city, but that aren't about like bringing about gospel fruit, and suddenly you see next to no involvement at all. And you hear rationalizing excuses like, well, that's, that's not really the job of the church. You know, we're, we're here to serve people's spiritual needs, and there's all kinds of government agencies and, and organizations that serve those other kinds of needs. So it's all about gospel declaration, uh, gospel demonstration here and there, but mostly here. So that's on the one hand, and on the other side, you've got churches that are all about gospel demonstration. They, they're involved in mercy ministries all over the place. They're on the downtown east side. They're serving addiction ministries, crisis pregnancy centers. They're... they're visiting with the sick and the elderly, those in prison, donating time and finances to natural disasters in order to see restoration take place. And hear me, this is also good and right and exactly what the church should be doing. And yet, when it comes to faithfully holding to and declaring the truth of God's word, when it comes to calling people to repentance, when it comes to presenting the message of the gospel in a way that is both compelling to our current culture, but is also challenging to societal norms, suddenly you see next to no involvement from them, and you also hear rationalizing excuses from them with, you know, they say things like, well, you know, listen, it's not our place to say that any one person's definition or understanding of truth is superior to anyone else's. 
we're just here to love people. The church is just here to love people. And by love, what, what they very often mean is just not disagreeing with anybody about anything. And yet, do you see, do you see it? Like, although both these aspects of gospel ministry are right and good, gospel declaration, gospel demonstration, you, to focus on one to the exclusion of the other is only to carry out half of the mission that Jesus has called us into. And I'm not saying that, that the church is always going to do this perfectly. I'm certainly not suggesting that here uh, at Dunbar Heights, we, we've got this down. We're doing it perfectly here. We're not. But what I am saying, what I believe that the, the passage here is calling us to, is that we need to see that both of those aspects are necessary. That is the pattern of ministry we've been called to. Gospel declaration and demonstration. Ministry of the word and deed. We, we need both if we're going to truly follow and enter into the mission that Jesus has called us into. It's the pattern we saw Jesus carrying out in his ministry. It's the pattern we saw his disciples carrying out in theirs. And I believe it's undoubtedly the pattern we need to still continue to strive for ourselves as we seek to enter into the call to Jesus' ministry ourselves. Okay, so that's what it means, generally speaking, to be called into the ministry of Christ. That is a ministry of gospel declaration and demonstration where both are to be understood as, as being as essential as the other to being faithful to the mission. We need to see both as equally important. But that's actually not the fullness of the call. That's a, that's, that's a big part of it, but it's not the fullness of it. And where you see the fullness of it, we see as we move on now to the remainder of our passage, as Jesus now begins to expand beyond the parameters of this specific call, uh, and he reveals that being called into his mission also includes being called into his sufferings as well. So let's look lastly at called into the sufferings of Christ. Because now is where we're going to understand the fullness of what we're being called into. And we need to look at this because maybe you know already, um, if you've spent much time in the Bible, John 16 is actually kind of a parallel passage to ours. It's kind of John's take on this exact same incident and, and time of instruction with Jesus. Uh, and John, in his gospel, John 16 says this, Jesus tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that kind of makes sense to us. We're like, right, yeah, I mean, a lot of trouble in this world, sins, wars, difficulty, I get it. And yet, man, when you look at Jesus' description of trouble in our passage here, we see what that looks like for followers of his. You see pretty quick, quickly, he's, he's not referring to gathering restrictions and mask mandates. I mean, look, look, look at the way he just starts. Verse 16, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That can't be good. Uh, I've, I've never raised sheep before. I've never uh, tended to sheep in any fashion, and yet, I know even from like stories like The Boy Who Cried Wolf, sheep and wolves do not play well together. This is not a, a fair, evenly matched gathering, okay? So it's already starting off really bad. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And then as you read on, you see that what, what felt like kind of a foreboding beginning, uh, what Jesus was going to say here, it's entirely accurate. As he describes beatings, uh, uh, floggings, being dragged into courts and synagogues, brothers handing over brothers, fathers handing over their children, children handing over their parents to be put to death, that they'll be hated by all. Why? Verse 22, for the sake of being identified with Jesus' name. That's why. 
Jesus is saying, if you're going to be identified with me, if you're going to join me in this mission I'm calling you to, sufferings like this are going to come alongside the glory of being a part of my mission. There's going to be lots of great stuff. There's also going to be suffering involved. And as we read on through the gospel accounts, we don't see anyone but but Jesus suffering in these kinds of ways. And yet when you get to the book of Acts, you look at the history of the early church, you absolutely see this is what happened. People dragged into the Colosseums, suffering horrifically in ways for the sake of Jesus' name. And as you continue to study church history, you see this is what continues to happen to follower of Jesus right up until today. And on the face of it, without, along with sounding horrific and terrifying to experience, I don't know if it's the same for you, but when I, I, I try to hold these two things together, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me. I can't wrap my head around why this would be the case. Like when you look at the ministry of Christ that Jesus has called his followers to join him in, preaching the good news, the kingdom of heaven is here, it's at hand, healing people, cleansing lepers, raising up people from the dead. I can't understand, and they're doing all this without any cost to anyone that they're serving. Why in the world would suffering and persecution like this be people's response to being served like this? Why would these things go together? It doesn't make sense to me. And I don't know all the answer, and I th- but I think part of it, at least, is what comes... We read in John chapter 3, Jesus is uh, talking to one of the religious rulers, Nicodemus, who comes to him by night to learn from him. And Jesus says this. He says, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, yet people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So so I think that's absolutely one of the reasons why, even to this day, suffering and persecution are at times the results of joining Jesus in his kingdom mission. Because as the light of the world, ministry in Jesus' name is by definition a ministry of light. We are bringing God's light to bear on this darkened world. And and many people don't want that light at all. They, They hate the light. They hate it because of what it exposes. And so they reject it, and they do everything in their power to snuff it out. And I mean, isn't that exactly what we saw happening to Jesus himself as he, the light of the world, came into this world? The religious rulers doing everything they could to snuff out that light. If that was the case for Jesus, why wouldn't it also be the case for his followers? Jesus says himself there, look, second half of verse 25, if they've called the master of the house, Beelzebub, they've called... The master of the house, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus says it this way in John 15. Again, this is a parallel passage to ours. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love you as its own, because, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And yet as awful as it sounds, I don't know if it's the same for you as you've read through them. I mean, it looks, it's, it looks horrific. It looks awful. For the average churchgoer in a North American Western church context, this, this sounds as far removed from our experience as can be. When you're reading stuff like this, you're like, I've never been persecuted like this for being a follower of Jesus. 
never once being beaten, never once being imprisoned, had my life threatened for claiming to follow Jesus. That's never happened. So I don't understand this. I don't, I don't, this doesn't seem to be my experience at all. And yet, I wonder. Well, listen, hear me. I, 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 not for a moment am I suggesting that we should ever desire to be persecuted for our faith like this. No. I wonder if how little it costs us to identify as a follower of Jesus in our North American context is truly a good thing. I wonder if the absence of any true suffering for our faith, which you see in places like China, North Korea, Islamic State countries, where, where the church is actually exploding, is blowing up there in these places where they're just being pounded for their faith. I wonder if that doesn't also account for the largely ineffective reach of the church in North America today in our cities, our neighborhoods, our homes, as well as the yawning indifference with which many pursue the work of the kingdom. Just like, hmm, yeah. It makes me wonder if being called to the sufferings of Christ, to, to experience the costliness of faith in Jesus, isn't just the response of people who hate the light. But if being called into the sufferings of Christ isn't also a tool in the hands of the good shepherd who sends out his sheep in the midst of the wolves to remind us of the infinite value of the new life that we have in Christ and also to remind us that this world in its present state is not truly our home. Because it's weird. Like I, I look around, what I see all around me is that the absence of suffering, the absence of persecution, which is good, like it feels so... Like, that's, that's a great thing. Rather than producing strong faith and strong disciples, which you think it would. I mean, we're, we're able to train without distraction, without impediment, without anything getting in our way. And yet still, nine times out of ten, what I see that producing is weak faith and comfortable indifference in the church. We're just, we're just kind of doing okay. I see the lack of, of suffering and persecution causing us to lose sight of just how valuable our new life in Christ is and also how valuable the message of the kingdom that we've been called to, to deliver truly is. As the Apostle Paul said, Paul who, who suffered in all these ways Jesus lists here and, and many others, said so powerfully in Romans 8, 18, he said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul suffered greatly for his faith in Jesus when he switched jerseys and joined Jesus' team. I mean, Jesus said as much to that uh, to Ananias when he called him to go and lay his hands on Paul so he could receive his sight. He's, he said, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. And yet, although Paul suffered, it didn't cause him to, to shrink back and to, to become weaker in his faith. It only caused him to grow stronger. And to see the, the reality of his sufferings as nothing in comparison with the glory that was being revealed to him and through him in Christ. But that is, that's Paul's response to the fullness of Jesus' call. That, that's uh, Jesus' first disciples' response. That's the response of disciples throughout church history right up until today. What about you? What's your response to Jesus' call today? Remember, I said as we began this morning that the question we need to be able to answer for ourselves in light of Jesus' call is not only will I join Jesus in his ministry, a gospel declaration and demonstration, 
seeking to bring the realities of the kingdom to bear on this world, but will I also join him in his sufferings? Will I join him in the fullness of what he's called me to? I don't know, maybe you hear that and you say, like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, go get arrested for being a follower of Jesus? Am I supposed to move to some country where I could lose my life for, for my faith in Jesus and then that means I've accepted his call? No. I don't think that's what, that's not what I'm saying. I sure don't think that's what Jesus is, is saying here. To start with, I, I'd, I'd ask you to remember that suffering can happen in all kinds of different ways. Uh, the costliness of your faith doesn't always mean imprisonment or being led out to the lions. Sometimes the costliness of your faith can mean uh, paying financial costs that are higher, that, that cost more in the moment. It's more expensive because you're doing it in the honest way. And, and if you would do it in a dishonest, kind of shady way, you could get it done faster, you get it done easier, less expensive, but you choose the more expensive way in order to testify the reality of your faith in Christ. It, it could mean losing credibility or status in the eyes of your colleagues or your friends by identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus, even when it's unpopular or even laughable to do so. There's a costliness to that. And then I follow that up by saying, as I watch current cultural trends in Western society, the growing antagonism towards the Christian faith in particular, I wonder, I wonder how long it is actually before we don't experience some of those same things, imprisonment, loss of property and status for our faith in, in the North American context as well. But in whatever way, any of us are ever called to suffer for our faith in Jesus and taking on the fullness of his call, suffer for his name, suffer for the faithfulness to his call. I think the question on most of our minds when we look at that is we think, I don't know if I can do that. That seems really, I mean, some of these things that he's talking about here, I don't, I don't think I could do that. And even in my own context, man, it's really scary. When my coworkers are, are, are making fun of that religious person or whatever it is, and, and, and I have that opportunity to say, actually, that's what I believe. Like, that's pretty hard. I don't, I don't know if I can do that. Let alone go to jail for my faith or risk my life. How, how could I do this? How can I know that I'll be able to remain faithful in the face of suffering for Jesus? How do I know I'll be strong enough to stand firm and not just give in or give up? And I think one answer is found in something we read in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews is a book that was written to a church suffering equally under persecution, difficulties, just like Jesus is describing here. Listen to what we read in the beginning of chapter 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Which I think shows us two things. First of all, it shows us we can stand firm in the midst of suffering. You can do this because of the great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us, which show us, if nothing else, it's possible. Like, it's possible to do. It doesn't say how it's possible, but it's possible. But then far more than that, as we read on, we see that we can stand firm in the midst of suffering because the one who sends out, he sends us out as sheep among the wolves is not the hired hand, 
who cares nothing for the sheep. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for them. He's the one who walks with us in a valley as dark as the shadow of death. That's why we can do this. We can enter into these places of darkness because Jesus, first of all, he went ahead of us. He, he walked that dark path truly alone, which is what we just spent this past Easter weekend uh, focusing on and celebrating. The fact that Jesus, abandoned by every friend, forsaken by the Father, also that in the face of suffering, whatever ways we might be called to suffer, you and I might never have to walk alone. You'll never do it on your own. You'll do it with the one who is with us always, even to the end of the age, and who, in the power of his spirit, enables us, empowers us to faithfully serve as his kingdom ministers, whatever may come against us. God, give us the wisdom, give us the courage, give us the faith to accept his call in all its forms. Call to his ministry as well to his call to suffering. 